Good morning. How's everybody doing today? The sun is out finally. Didn't the worship team do a great job? I got to give accolades, Chris. And the rest of the team, you guys did a great job. You know, it's never easy doing something like that, especially when you don't do it all the time. And uh, there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes here that not everybody sees. And uh, Chris and, and the rest of the team, they really stepped up to the plate. You guys did a wonderful job. It was just awesome. Much better than some video worship, right? Yeah. I like my awkward pauses. It makes it really gets everyone's attention all the time. Something about a baseball bat in your hands feels really good. You know, every time uh, I get a chance to speak, or anyone for that matter, when we speak, we always give a part of our life. Because we're talking about the gospel, but we're also talking about how the gospel affected us. How it's changed us, in a way. So we, we take it very seriously. I take it very seriously, and it's, um, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to share with you this morning. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my life, and then we're going to talk about uh, uh, Gideon's life in the Bible. Uh, you've all heard of Gideon before, but I'm hoping to bring a different perspective of his life to you uh, as it relates to my life. And So I'll talk about the baseball bat a little bit. When I was about, I think I was about seven or eight years old, I played my one and only, uh, in my one and only sports league. Pee-wee League. Do they still have Pee-wee League, Ray? No? Yeah? It's like T-ball. Well, we didn't have T-ball. We had, like, pitchers. The coach would pitch. It's different. It's called Pee-wee League then when I did it. Forty years ago, okay? So now you know how old I am. Um, I was the smallest kid on the team. And in my class for that matter. I was really small for my age uh, compared to the other kids. They were all growing up faster than me. And I would get up to bat and... Um, I couldn't hit the ball. It went on for most of the, the season like that. We get towards the end of the season, and the, the other kids on the team started to complain to my coach because I never got a hit. I never got a hit. And the coach had me in leadoff spot. I was batting first. Now, let me tell you something. I don't remember my coach's name. I don't remember any of the teammates' names that I played with. But I remember what happened that day when the coach heard the complaints from the other team. He looked at all the other kids and he looked at me and he said, Guys, Tom's in the leadoff spot for a reason. You may not know it, but he's my secret weapon on this team. He's my secret weapon. The other kids grumbled. Listen, when Tom gets up to hit, the coaches can't pitch to him because he's so small. He gets on base every time. <laughs> he gets on base every time. If we didn't have Tom, who knows how many games we would have lost. You know, even though I can't remember his name, I remember that like it was yesterday. Something that had me, was holding me down, holding me back, made me feel inferior, made me feel worthless because I couldn't hit the ball. A coach put it into perspective for me and the rest of the team and put a spin on it that could have possibly changed my life. I, it, obviously, I'm telling you about it today. It affected my life. There's lots of times that we feel worthless. There's lots of times that we feel like we can't make a hit in life. There's lots of times that uh, people will tell us, maybe some other teammates, maybe coworkers, other classmates, that you're not good enough. You'll never make it. <laughs> I 
when I was when I first started working in the construction trade, I after it was my my third job in construction, framing houses, and the guy that I worked for was a good guy, uh, but I had just gotten married and I needed insurance because I wanted to be able to take care of my wife, and you know, so I joined the union. Instead of being happy for me, my boss talked down to me, told me I would be nothing. I would never, you will never have the house that you want. You'll never make any money. You're going to be in the union and you're just going to be a failure. I can remember the day that I almost cried at 19, 20 years old. Obviously, that's not true. Praise God. It's quite the opposite. See, I had people tell me on my baseball team, I've had people tell me in my work life that I wasn't going to make it. You're not going to be anybody. They were trying to tell me who they thought I was. Who they thought I was. And if I would have believed that, I would have never found out who God says I am. Amen? Isn't it important? It's important to know that God says who you are. Not other people. Not circumstances. Not the chaos like uh, Stuart was talking about. That goes on around us. God says who we are. And that's what we need to believe. It wasn't long after my quick baseball career uh, at around eight years old. I don't remember exactly, but it was around, I was around eight that my parents got divorced. Now, mind you, our family was the perfect family. We lived in an 11-room house on the best side of town. I wore all the best clothes. My dad worked hard and my mom stayed home and took care of us. We went camping in the summers. We went fishing. It was great. And then the divorce happened. My world was crushed. Completely and utterly destroyed. Now, that wasn't my fault. I don't even blame my parents for it. They were caught up in the chaos around them. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't have a support system. They, we weren't part of a church. But as an eight-year-old boy, I was crushed. What was happening around me was different than what was to come. Years later, after I got married, Denise and I, we seemed to have a great, a great life. We started out right. We went and we had premarital counseling and we had uh, a support system of a church. And then we started making the wrong decisions. We stopped going to the church. You know that, Denise and I, you can look at our lives now and, and think, wow, they got it made. Live on a lake. Drive a motorcycle. They got a boat. They seem so happy. Do you know that Denise and I nearly got divorced twice? <laughs> and I mean, serious. Divorce. All the way to the day, the day that we were supposed to get divorced. Went to the courtroom together and decided not to do it. See, you never know what's going on in somebody's life or where they came from. They told me I'd be a failure. It wasn't long after that that I did turn a corner. Instead of traveling down that same old road. And I gave my heart to the Lord. For real. And I started to follow Him. And I started to read His Word. And I was around His people. And things, as I made better decisions, things in my life changed. As I made decisions to do what the Lord wanted me to do, and not what I wanted to do, 
I began to be blessed. If we're honest, most of us have stories like this. I know it's not unique to me. I know it's not just something special that I went through. In fact, if I sat down and had coffee with one of you, you could probably tell me worse stories maybe about your life that I don't know about. And I'd be overcome with thankfulness that you made it. I'm here to tell you this morning that you are worth something. God does value you. You can make it. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you've made. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you've made. If you start to make the right decisions to move in the right in the direction of the Lord, it'll change for you. Why do I know that? Because I live it. Am I perfect? No. Do I make mistakes? Yes. I'd hate to have one of you ride around with me on my, or go to one of my job sites with me sometimes. I'd be embarrassed. <laughs> Completely embarrassed. But that's not who I am. That's who somebody else wants me to be. That's not who I am. That's not who God says I am. I want to transition a little bit into Gideon's life because the Bible's full of people just like me and just like you. And God had people write these stories in a book so that we could look at it and we could read it thousands of years later and relate to what was going on, what was happening. How they overcame. And Gideon was a great overcomer. In Gideon's life, there were things that were happening uh, around him, but it wasn't what was to come for him. In the book of Judges, if if you've ever read that, you should if you haven't. But there was a time in Israel's history where the people wanted a king so badly. They wanted Jesus to come then. They didn't know who it was. They, just, they needed a king. They wanted a leader. But they were in this cycle. They were in a cycle of sin. Gideon was one of many judges. This went on for, for hundreds of years. Um, but when Gideon was a judge, they were in this cycle. It wasn't necessarily Gideon's fault, as we're going to find out. It, it wasn't necessarily related just to Gideon's sin. You know, kind of like a, a kid whose parents got divorced. It wasn't the kid's fault. Gideon was just born at a time where there was chaos. There was things going on that were crazy. And what would happen is Israel would turn from God and they would serve idols. And then God would just turn his head away from them, turn his face away from them. And he'd let the oppressive nations around surround them and overtake them. God wasn't causing it, but because of their disobedience, it was allowed. They opened the door. God said don't serve idols. They served idols. It allowed it in. Kind of like what's happening now, right, Stuart? It's no different. People are no different. We're no different now. And the answer is no different now. We need to listen to what God is telling us. Israel would then turn around to God and cry out for help. And then God would raise up a judge or a leader and get them out of their mess. Judges um, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 says this. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies and all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders. 
Israel rebelled, God disciplined, Israel repents, God delivers. It was a cycle they were caught up in. Now, let me just step back into my life for a minute. I was caught in a cycle. I was caught in a cycle of sin that maybe I wasn't responsible for. But as I grew older and made decisions, I became responsible for them. I accepted them. So when I accepted them, then it was my problem. What we have to do as Christians is step out of that cycle. We need to jump off the wheel. We need to get out of that chaos. And how do you do that? You make a decision. You make a decision that you're not going to live like that. You're not going to be that guy, that girl. I'm going to live my life right. Israel turns from God. God turns to Israel over oppressive neighbors. Israel cries for help. God raises a judge to deliver them. It's a cycle. How do you stop the cycle? Right there. Israel turns from God to idols. Don't turn to idols. Don't turn from God. Number one way to stay out of trouble is to follow God. Do what His Word says. Number one. You want blessing in your life? Do what God says. You want your enemies to overtake you? You want your bills to swarm over you? You want your, your housing to fall apart? You want your children to run away from God? You want, uh, you want your addiction to become number one in your life? Just It's easy. Go the other way. Don't serve God. Don't follow God. Your life will be a mess. You'll be in the chaos. And you'll come to a point where you're going to say, God, I need your help. God will be right there to pick you up. He'll be right there to pick you up as long as you start to make the right decision. How long will He allow this cycle to last? I don't know. Don't play with your eternal life like that. That's eternal Russian roulette. Kingdom roulette. Which kingdom do you want to spend eternity in? Gideon was raised up as a judge, and he was a a judge for 40 years. I'll talk a little bit about him uh, just to bring things into perspective for you. Judges, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here's that cycle. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves. Imagine that. Living in a cave like this. Whenever Israelite Israelites planted their crops. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the countries. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So here you got the nation of Israel, God's people, who's been living in this cycle. Gideon wasn't the first judge. They've been living in this cycle, and they keep going back and doing the wrong thing. It says the these Midianites came in that you couldn't even count them or their... Imagine, filling uh, camels started walking into this building and we couldn't count them. And they were trampling over your seats. What if they walked into your kitchen and went through your cupboards and started eating your cereal? Don't touch that cereal, boy. Don't touch the cereal, Stuart. 
That's what they were doing. You'd work hard planting a few crops so that you could feed your family. And some guy's camel would come trample over it. And they'd rip your crops out and they'd feed it to their camel or their donkey or to their family. This is what's going on. They forced you out of your home. Imagine somebody coming into your home and saying, get out. I live here now. You go live in a cave. This is really what was happening. Gideon and his family, they were living in a state of constant fear. Fear that they would not eat. Fear that they would not have a place to sleep. Fear that they would lose their family and friends. Fear that they would have no future and no hope. They were being told they'd be no one. They were being told they couldn't hit the ball. They were being told they would never amount to anything. See, if Gideon listened to that, he would have been believing what everyone else said they were and not who God said he was. In the middle of all that depression and oppression, God hears the cries of his people. He responds and sends them a messenger. Look in Judges chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the land of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you did not listen to me. We see in this passage of Scripture where God's reminding Gideon and his people of what he did. After they cried out for help, God first set the table straight and said, He said, I'm the Lord your God. He said, what he had done. He brought them out of slavery. He reminded them of that. He reminded them that he rescued them. He reminded them that he delivered them. He reminded them that he gave them land. And he instructed them how to live. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites. He reminded them of the error of their error. You did not listen to me. Oftentimes, when we find ourselves in distress, we cry out to God. The question I have is, do we listen when he answers? Do we really listen? Or do we just need somebody to get us a get-out-of-jail-free card? Judges 6, 11, and 12. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash, the Abazite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now let me set the scene for you a little bit better here. I've heard one teacher say that um, we, we don't know uh, that much about threshing, but, uh, well, let me, let me show you a video. Let me show you a video. How many of you all have ever threshed wheat on your own before? Me neither. That's why I had to go look it up on YouTube. <laughs> Thank the Lord for YouTube. Man, what would we... Uh, oh. I learn a lot on there. But let me set the stage for you a little bit. See, the scripture says that he's in a wine press. Did it look like they were in a wine press? Do you know what a wine press is? 
A wine press is something that you put grapes into, and you crush them, and the fluid, the, the, the juices come out, so you can collect the wine. A wine press isn't designed to thresh wheat in. In fact, I've heard it said that threshing wheat, when, when they would make areas, the threshing floor, they would call it, it would be in an area that was up on top of a hill. Why was it up on top of the hill? Because they, had, they needed a good breeze to blow the chafe away. The wine presses, where were they? They were at the bottom of the hill. Because when all the vineyards were grown on the side of the hill, they would take the grapes and it's easier to drag them down. They didn't need wind for grapes. They didn't need wind for the, the wine. So they dragged the grapes down. So here's Gideon. Get the picture. Now, a wine press is something like, and I, I couldn't do a prop for you for that, but a wine press is like a big barrel, right? Had to be big enough for him to be in it because the scripture said he was in the wine press, threshing wheat. And he was doing it out of fear because the Midianites were all around. And the camels were trampling on their gardens and stealing their cereal. So here's Gideon. I love reading the Bible and reading things that it's not said in the Bible, but this is really what's happening. Now, I didn't have any wheat, so we have rice here. Here's Gideon in a wine press. Crouched down. After he's beaten this bag full of grass, just trying to get a few kernels so he can make some bread. And in the wine press, there's slats and there's holes for the wine juice to drip out. And he's in there and he's just trying to hold things steady right in front of one of those cracks so that he could drop the wheat and the chafe and hoping for a breeze in fear. That it'll blow the chafe away and he'll get enough to make some bread. Imagine that picture. A man hiding. And then imagine an angel appearing and saying, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I can just imagine Gideon. turning his head slowly as he's trying to sift out the chafe, rolling his eyes and looking at this angel and saying, do I look like a warrior to you? I'm hiding in a freaking wine press. Imagine that scene, right? That's what, hey, listen, that's the Bible. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Wine press isn't conducive to, to this operation. Judges 6.13. <laughs> this is Gideon. Remember now, he turns his head slowly, rolling his eyes. Pardon me, Lord. Pardon me. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. See, Gideon's stuck in this cycle and he doesn't know which way to go. And they cry out to the Lord, and the, and the Lord sends an angel to him, trying to give him some answers, and he's not listening. All he can think about is, well, how did I get here? Why am I here? Why is this happening to me? Why did my parents get divorced? Why can't I hit the ball? This is what the Lord said to him. He turned to him and he said, go in strength. You have, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midianites' hand. Am I not sending you? The Lord didn't skip a beat. He didn't look at the, this guy that was hiding in a wine press. He didn't see who this guy thought he was. 
The Lord said he was a warrior, and that's what he was. It didn't matter what was happening around him. It didn't matter the circumstances. It didn't matter what his father did. It didn't matter what his mother did. It didn't matter what his children were doing. It didn't matter if he could hit the ball on the team or if he was just the secret weapon that was going to walk. The Lord said he was a warrior. Pardon me, Gideon says again. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. But Lord, even if you say I'm a warrior, I was the smallest kid on the team. Lord answers, I'll be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Translation, they ain't going to eat your cereal no more, son. You ain't going to have to clean up no camel poop anymore. You see... We need to believe who God says we are and not who they think we are. We need to believe who God says we are and not who they think we are. We need to believe who God says we are and not who they think we are. We, you need to believe who God says you are and not what your coworker thinks you are. You need to believe who God says you are and not who the disgruntled family member thinks you are. You need to believe who God says you are. And God says you are priceless. He says you are worth something. He says that you are have a purpose in my life. You will serve in my kingdom. He says that you are great among many. He says that because you serve me, they will look at you as kings and queens. He says, you are blessed among every nation. He says, you will save many people with my word and following my actions, my, my dis- direction. We need to believe who God says we are, not who the world says we are, not who the nightly news says we are. Not who the sitcoms say we are. We need to believe who God says we are. Where was Gideon's life going? In his greatest decision, which was obedience to God. So Gideon's at a point here in the wine press, right, that he's got to make a decision. He's either going to listen to this crazy angel, or he's going to keep cleaning up camel poop and hoping for a slice of bread every day in the wine press. Verse 17 says, Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. At this point, Gideon is starting to realize what's happening. Gideon's brings the Lord back an offering of meat and bread and broth, and he places it on the ground, and the Lord touches it with the staff and consumes it with fire. Look what happens next. In verse 25 through 27, it says, The same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, Take down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood from the Asherah pole that was cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Verse 27, Gideon took down ten of his servants. He wasn't going to do this by himself. He's starting to recruit some help now. He's starting to get around some people that are starting to believe what God says they are. 
That's what's happening. So he gets ten of his servants, and he goes, uh, but because he was afraid of family and townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Gideon was obedient, and he did as the Lord said. And I'm sure this decision was hard. Let's, let's look a little closer at what, what he was doing. It said, take the second bowl from your father's herd. Now, I know that probably, maybe somebody does, but I don't know if your father has a bowl or if he's got a second bowl. But a second bowl would represent your future. The first bowl is the bowl they're using now to breed the cows, and that first bowl is probably on his way out, and that's why they have a second bowl. So the Lord said, take his second bull, take his future, take your family's future and take it and you're going to kill it and you're going to give that as a sacrifice to me. Big decision. Gideon had to make a huge decision there. It says, tear down your father's altar to bow and cut down the Asherah pole. So his father obviously was worshiping these gods. Big part of the mess that the whole nation was in anyways. So he's got an altar to bow and he's got a totem pole to Asherah, and he's told to tear that altar down and cut up the wood because that's going to be for your firewood. Big, big decision. Build another altar in its place, start a fire with the pole, and then kill the bull as an offering. Gideon was not only listening to the Lord, but he was about to dishonor his father and essentially... The entire town. That's why he did it at night. Gideon's life was surely about to change drastically here. See, what Gideon was doing, he was starting to step out of the cycle of sin. Gideon was, by his actions and listening to the Lord, he was saying, I'm about to step off of this wheel. I'm about to step out of this mess. I'm about to step into the blessed life. I'm about to step into where God says I should be. I'm about to step into who God says I should be. And I'm not going alone. I'm bringing these guys with me. Oh, his life was about to change. As expected, he was found out to be the culprit. Instead of his father giving in to the town's demands, he convinced them to allow Baal. Yeah, let Baal, Baal deal with Gideon. Yeah, we're not going to deal with them. Judges 31 and 32 says this, But Joash replied to the hostile crowd and said, Joash was his father, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself, can't he? When someone breaks down his altar? So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar... They gave him the name Jeroboam that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. So Gideon's father realizes, I think, kind of what's happening with his son here. He's about, to, he's about to step off and do some great things. Here I am. I've been standing in my son's way, in my nation's way, by building this altar and having these things here. If this God that we've been worshiping is so real, let him deal with Gideon. You know that Baal never did bother Gideon? What do you think that made the rest of the town think? Isn't that interesting? Nothing said about it there, but... Baal didn't come strike Gideon down. Gideon must be somebody special. I am messing with Gideon. Further on in Scripture... 33 and 35, 633 and 35. It says, Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew, blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. So they too went up. To meet them. So here's Gideon. He goes from a guy that's hiding in a wine press, sifting wheat, cleaning up camel poop, hoping for a place to rest his head in a cave, to a leader of a nation. He's now summoning people, summoning people to come help him. 
and putting together an army. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. Here we are now on the threshing floor. We're not in the wine press. That's interesting that we turn to this. Now we're on the threshing floor, up on top of the hill where everybody can see, where there's plenty of wind. Gideon's putting together an army. But he's still a little shaky, so he asks God, you've got to prove it to me that you're going to help me out here. So if there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you're there to save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day and he squeezed the fleece out, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Well, that wasn't enough for Gideon. He wanted to do it again. He said, but this time make the ground all wet and the fleece dry. Now, the Lord is patient with us, right? He's patient. This is the third time that Gideon tests the Lord. One was with the offering, now two times with wool. Do not be angry with me, Lord. Let me just make one more request. Allow one more test of the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so, and the fleece was dry. I think this is when Gideon had his point where he was really turned around. He said, God, you're really for me. Kind of like the time where I really finally gave my heart to the Lord and said, I'm really going to follow you, Lord. And it changed things for me. It changed things for Gideon. Gideon has gone from a scared man in a wine press to a leader of his people about to engage in war. What happened? In the following event, we can see Gideon not only lead his people to victory, but he's done it in a way that gives hope to the hopeless. He does it in God's strength and not in his own, in that of a large and powerful army. In Judges chapter 7, it says this, Early in the morning, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod, the camp of Midian, was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, and while 10,000 remained. Now, here's Gideon, right? Goes from the wine press to the top of the hill. Starts to lead the way that the Lord wants him to lead. Starts to do the things that he's supposed to do. Start, he's stepping out of that cycle. He's jumping off of that wheel. The Lord, and he's there with his army, and the Lord says, you got too many guys. We're not going to do it this way. And, tw- and he said, all right, so I'll just tell your men, anybody that's a little, if you're a little bit scared, go home. Basically what he said. If you're scared, you can go home. It's okay. The Lord said it's okay. We're not in need of your services right now. And 22,000 guys start marching out. Now, let me just refresh your memory here. Earlier on, it was said that all these Midianites and Amalekites and and all the eastern people, we couldn't count them or their camels. And now you've got 22,000 guys leaving your posse. And it leaves you only with ten. Doesn't stop here. Judges 7, 4 through 8. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water, and, with, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this, is one, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap water with their tongues as a dog laps from, the, from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, The 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give you the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300. 
who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So we go from 30-something thousand, maybe more, down to 300. Now, Gideon didn't even blink at this. He just did what the Lord said. So you can tell he's maturing through this process. More is not always the answer, but wisdom, strategy, and fortitude to execute is. More is not always the answer, but wisdom, strategy, and the fortitude to execute is. Lord, if I just had more money, I would serve you. Lord, I would help the homeless. I would feed the poor. I would clothe the little babies. Lord, if my home was just bigger, I would have all the church gatherings at my house. I would bless the pastor. Lord, if I was prettier. Lord, if I was skinnier. Lord, 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 more, more, more. To quote my friend, hogwash. More is not always the answer. Wisdom, strategy, and the fortitude to execute is. Wisdom comes from God. The strategy comes from the Holy Spirit. And the fortitude to execute it comes from you. And your confidence. And your God. Did you hear what I said there? Wisdom comes from the Lord. Strategy comes from the Holy Spirit. And the, the fortitude to execute it comes from you and your confidence and the God that you serve. In Judges 7, 17 and 18, it says, Watch me, he told them. Follow my... This is Gideon. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and his 300 men were victorious that day. All they had was a trumpet in one hand, a torch in the other, and they did exactly what God said. And with 300 men, they overtook countless We couldn't count how many there were. He had wisdom and he had strategy. And Gideon, he had the fortitude to execute that plan. He went from hiding in a wine press and threshing wheat to a leader in the nation. Gideon's value was visible to God, but not to himself or others. Gideon not only turned his life around, but he brought others along as well. Think about the ten servants that tore down that altar with him. Think about the 300 men who defeated the entire Midianite army. You know, even after all this, Gideon made a huge mistake at the end of his life. See, he probably got comfortable in who he was, and he started to think of think about himself as who he thought he was and not who God thought he was. And he took a bunch of gold earrings and different gold that they've gotten over time to, from, the, from these armies that they defeated and he made a, a golden ephod. That's kind of a trophy, you will. And he put it in his hometown. I can just imagine Gideon going back to his hometown for the grand opening of the Museum of the Ephod. And people started to worship the Ephod instead of God. Huge mistake, Gideon. But even after all that, he must have done the right thing because in Scripture, in Hebrews 11, it says, And what more shall I say? 
I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, they administered justice, and they gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. This is what later saints said about Gideon. This is what God said about him, even though he made a mistake. So it's never too late for us to step off the wheel. It's never too late for us to jump out of the cycle of sin. It's never too late for us to realize exactly who God says we are instead of believing who we think we are or who others say. Stand up with me, please. You know, the message that I want to send today is that God loves you. God thinks you're important. God has a purpose for you. He's called you. He understands where you've been. He knows where you're going. He gets the chaos. He understands all the the havoc. He knows your bad decisions, but He still calls you a warrior. See, God believes in you. And I believe in you. And the reason I believe in you is because God's called you. And God has called you to be something so great and so awesome and so wonderful. So what I want to pray today is that each one of us starts to believe who God says we are and not what the world says we are or portrays us to be. Lord, I thank You, Father. I thank You, Father, that You've called us from places like wine presses, Lord, divorced families. You've called us from addiction, Lord. You've called us from chaos. You've called us from so many things, Lord. You've called us warriors. You've called us Your people. You've called us sons and daughters. You've called us healed. You've called us blessed You called us kings and You called us queens. You called us Yours. Lord, we love You. And I thank You, Lord, for reminding us today. I thank You for reminding us of who You say we are. We thank You, Lord. Help us to be who You want us to be. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Thank you all. Thank you all. Have a great week. Have a great week.